Then things at home got even worse with my mom's meth use. It was hard. It was like having to relive the worst memories of my childhood all over again. Mm. But this time without grandma. This is Camus. And this is Kylie. Welcome to God is Real, God is Good, a podcast where we collect stories about God working in people's lives through big miraculous ways all the way down to small everyday things. Hi, this is Camus, and this week we have Charles with us, Charles Sparks. And I know Charles from Bible study that we were doing up at Cassie's and, you know, all that fun stuff. So been Bible study together now since October of last year so known each other almost an entire year now so we asked charles to do our podcast because we're always looking for people so charles why don't you tell everybody where you're from so i am from a fairly busy oil field town in west texas yeah fun stuff texas idaho big difference they say everything's bigger in texas but we they don't have trees there, so the trees here are bigger. Are like any mountains or hills, so the topography is much bigger too. <laughs> so, yeah. So actually, the hills are bigger in Idaho, so Texas lied. Um. Anyway, um, why don't you tell us about your religious background growing up? So growing up, I guess I can explain it as a Christian in name only household. My family went to church. And that was about it. Normally it was, it ended negatively. We called Sundays hell days. Oh! Yes. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but my, my grandfather was the one who tried to raise me as a good Christian man. And he was really my primary positive influence. Mm, that's so nice. A lot of, a lot of, um, me not turning out worse is thanks mostly to him. <laughs> well, that's nice. It's nice to be like, oh, this is the one person that helped me not turn into a trash human. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So how about let's pray to start and then you can tell your story. Excellent. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this day today. And thank you for Charles and for him being willing to share his story on our podcast and just be with him. Give him the words to speak and help us to be able to touch people. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I guess a lot of my story has a lot of context to it from earlier days. I can kind of describe my life as a, a life of trial and error, uh-huh. where I've had many trials and I've made many errors. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I remember most of my life before I was about six years old that I was a very happy and content little child. Mm. I wanted to love on everybody and be happy. I enjoyed church. My mother was stable. I was, you know, I didn't have a father, but at the time I didn't really have a problem with that. Yeah. You know, I had I had the rest of my family. Yeah, you had your grandpa, so. Yeah. And I mean, we went fishing and some small little man-made fishing holes and whatnot, so that was good. But of course, those years were kind of blurry. I was young and. You know, my memory gets kind of fuzzy. Yeah. So I remember in around early middle school, so six, seven years old, my mother started to drink again. Hmm. And things kind of took several turns for the worst. Yeah. There was a couple of 
fun things where mom would come pick me up from school or she'd go to a function and there'd be liquor bottles in the seat. Oh. And some of the teachers had seen them. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, none of the teachers came and talked to me about it and none of the counselors, no one really did anything about it. It was just, oh, that's how it is. So when she started drinking and it got worse, her attitudes and how she treated her role as a parent also changed. Mm. So she would, you know, invite me or encourage me to drink alcohol, to smoke cigarettes. And her thing was, well, you're going to do it anyway. Might as well get the experience in a safe environment so that when you go out and do dumb stuff as an adult, you know what to expect, Mm. which of course is, you know, it all stems from what she knew about life. So seeing how those things have affected me, I don't really hold them against her because I, I believe she did the best with what she knew. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's all I can ask. Um, but again, growing up without a father, I had my grandfather, but he worked. He was a workaholic. Oh. Especially around um, the time when I really needed when my own mom was drinking, he worked more. Mm. He didn't want to be there anymore, anymore than anybody else did. Yeah. And my mom was seeking companionship. So she started watching shows like Lock Up and or, you know, um, like reality TV shows with prisoners. Yeah. And she would write to them. Oh. Yes. Uh, she felt that they would understand her better than other men would. That's interesting. Yes. Um, there was a particular man, we'll call him Charlie. He was a neo-Nazi, essentially. Oh. And... They talked, and they really got to know each other. It was, it was a couple of years of their of their relationship. So there's also kind of motivation for me to be raised in that kind of um, ideology. Oh. So, you know, you're living in the South. It's kind of a... It happens. It happens everywhere, and it's terrible. Mm, for sure. She also wanted me to watch videos and images of, you know, dead people on the Internet. Um... <laughs> She would, um, she would have me take certain disturbing images of her to send to these people that she was writing. A lot of things that you just don't do. Hmm. Things that tend to set people up for failure in the future. But again, that's what she knew. That's the life she understood. And that's the only thing that she could provide for me. Hmm. And I believe she did those things with the full belief that that was going to help me. It was going to let me know that life is not kind, life is cruel, and you need to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. I remember one day, my mom asked me, what is love? And I remember being really happy about it. And I was so excited to express, express to my mom that you know, oh, love is where you get to be happy and, and hug people and be around them. And a few years later, she told me about that story and how she reacted to it. She told me that whenever I gave her my answer, her only thought was, my baby's going to suffer. Hmm. And I didn't have the heart to tell her how right she was. Um, And a lot of that at her own hand. Hmm. So all through this time, I was still going to church. Church was was kind of fun. It was it was kind of boring. I went, I went to a liturgical church. 
So every single Sunday looked exactly the same. Really? Yes. So you'd go in, you'd have the procession, you'd sing some songs, you'd have communion, you'd have, sing another couple songs, it'd be a sermon, and then you'd, we'd have donuts and we'd go home and get yelled at. <laughs> oh. That was a weekly occurrence. And that's just how it was, and that's all I knew. I was also uh, being bullied in school. You don't want to be happy and hug on everybody, and children respond to that kindly in public school. So mm. I was teased for acting gay, <laughs> for liking things that, you know, I guess most young boys don't. You know, I liked colors, and I liked um, animals and things like that. And, I don't know. Sometimes children are a little bit cruel. Children can be cruel. They, they're, yeah. <laughs> and moving a little further on, uh, this was about in second grade. I was seven years old. Um, my mother's drinking came to a head. She was drunk every night for months and months. Her relationship with her mother and my grandmother uh, got worse. They were fighting and yelling. Things were getting getting physical. I would call the police, you know, maybe once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do anything, of course, because no one would press charges. And I was too young to do anything about it or to really understand what was going on. Yeah. And um, I was sitting in my mom's room, and Grandma was banging on the door, yelling. Mom was yelling back. This went on for about 15 minutes until Grandma got tired. She left, and Mom waited for a couple of minutes went out, came back, and sat down, and said, I know you're probably not strong enough, but what we can do is I can shoot you, and then I can shoot myself, and then we can be free together. Wow. And I had to beg her not to. Hmm. She was so depressed and so disturbed and so destroyed by the choices that she had made and the things that other people have done that that was what she thought was the only escape from it. And she thought it would be my only escape as well. Hmm. So, of course, that didn't actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> You're here! Yay! I, I ran to my room. I laid in my bed and I cried. I remember praying a lot at these times. Praying that God would heal my mom. That he would get her to quit drinking and quit doing drugs. That he would, you know, heal my family. Mm-hmm. And I felt a type of silence from those prayers. I didn't see the fruits of what I wanted. I didn't see a lot of things happen. And life just continued. So my interests in church slowly faded away. Um, it didn't prevent me from getting baptized. My grandfather wanted me to be baptized, so I did. It wasn't my personal decision, but I wanted Grandpa to be proud of me. So I wanted to do what he wanted. So I was baptized in 2001. My mother was baptized the same day. I was baptized by submersion. She she had a a liver biopsy done, so she couldn't really bend over very well. So she got um, sprinkled. Oh, okay. Um, And I was so searching and so desperate for friend groups and I did not find that at church mm-hmm. so I didn't really feel that I had anyone I wasn't I didn't believe that God really cared about me I didn't believe that the church had any place for me 
Um, my grandfather was always gone, so I felt alone, very alone. Mm. Um, a phrase I once heard is, "You tend people tend to view their Heavenly Father as they view their earthly father. Yeah. And I feel that that is very true, especially in the beginning. I never in my life doubted God's existence. I knew he was out there. Mm-hmm. And he, I knew that he knew I was here. Yeah. And that was the extent. That was the full relationship. So, naturally, <laughs> I started to act out. I started to not wanting to do chores or what have you. My grades were just in the toilet. I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention in school. And all the teachers were complaining. So, mom demanded I go to counseling. Mm. So, I started to go to counseling. The counselors never lasted long. Um, oh. I would talk to them, and then they would talk to my mom, and then I would never go back. Oh. Turns out what the counselors were saying is that my problem was actually her and my family, and that that needed a change. Hmm. But that was not the answer my mother was looking for. Oh, okay. So she kept switching me to counselors until she exhausted all of them in the area. Yeah, when you're young and you're struggling, it's typically connected to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, the school counselors kind of said that I was ADD and that I needed medication and I was hyperactive, which find me a young boy that isn't. <laughs> and that's just how it is. Um, so they ended up putting me on uh, various medications. I was on Ritalin, Stratera. Um, they put me on Effexor for um, a general depressive disorder. Nothing worked, really. Mm-hmm. It all achieved the goal that they wanted, but it didn't make me feel good. Kind of like putting a Band-Aid on some, the problem. Well, yeah. A lot like that. One of them made me feel emotionless. I had no emotions. I was totally apathetic. I had, had no feelings. Mm. But my schoolwork was just A's all across the board. I couldn't feel, but I did good in math. Yeah, that's that's um, not a good thing. Um, and I think that's that's becoming more common these days, where um, academia is not really prepared to handle young boys, so they ended up medicating them, maybe overdiagnosing certain disorders or, and conditions. It's just something I see. All, all of my friends, there there are guys were on some form of medication, hmm. all of them. And I'm pretty sure not every one of them was ADHD. Yeah. So. School systems aren't always the best for hyperactive children. No. So going into my later years of childhood, so junior high and toward the end of high school, not a lot changed for me. Um, my home life was still just as dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yelling was a daily occurrence. Um, I did start finding... Friends. Hey. Not quite. <laughs> um, the friend groups that I was able to like really get involved with and people get to know and me be accepted were generally not considered to be the best of friends. Oh. So I started hanging out with a bad crowd, um, mostly because they didn't really care who was there. Yeah. I started. Uh, I started wearing the big baggy pants with chains and trench coats. I painted my nails black. Um, Kind of look like an anime character almost. I was accused of that several times. I had a science class. They all called me Neo from the Matrix because my trench coat. But still, even after all that, my grandfather was... He 
didn't give up on me. Mm. The teachers all had. <laughs> but by and large, I fell through the cracks of the public school system like sand. Mm. It's really impressive, actually. I could get away with a lot, but my grandfather still believed in me. And that meant a lot. Uh, a lot of how, a lot of the reasons why I didn't get into more trouble is I was I started partying and going out and drinking and doing dumb stuff. Was I was so terrified that I would get into legal trouble, not because of the future ramifications, but because I didn't want to disappoint my grandfather. Mm. I didn't want to see him disappointed, which he kind of was because I was wearing a dog collar and that's <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was still involved in the church, sort of. I would still go. Um, they had hired a new youth pastor named Tom. And he and I kind of got along pretty well. Um, he didn't care what I dressed. He was just more interested in he wanted to come to Bible studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So... And I did what most high schoolers do, and I started my dating life, which was a huge mistake. You can't have two heavily broken people and a healthy functional relationship. And I learned that a few times until I eventually decided that I was too broken and could not bear the thought of inflicting myself on another person. Mm. So my dating life did not last very long, thankfully. Those are some heavy burdens to bear. Um, my partying got worse. I had this strange, unspoken goal to destroy myself with a like-minded audience. Mm. That's what I wanted. So, uh, I just, that's the kind of people I hung out with, you know, that's how it was. People just as broken as you are, Mm -hmm. trying to ignore that brokenness. Yes. Misery loves company. And of course, we made it so much worse for each other. (laughs) One of the strangest points is, even at this time, when I was at my worst, I would still have considered myself to have been a Christian. Hmm. I'm not sure why, other than maybe that's just a title I had given myself since early childhood that I wasn't ready to let go, because I certainly wasn't living the life. Yeah. I wasn't reading the Bible, I wasn't committed in any way to anything except... Well, drinking, really. (laughs) That was my only commitments. Mm. I remember when that kind of hit me. We'll get into that a little later, though. My mother started to try to commit suicide on a fairly regular basis. Her, she tried to take pills. Um, Usually, that's what it was. She mixed pills with alcohol. Mm. I would come in, I'd find her unresponsive, call the ambulance, they'd come pick her up, and she'd be gone for a couple of days. So, yeah, kind of all of a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's a good starting place. Yes. So, my school career at the normal high school eventually came to an end. Prior to graduating, I kind of, I was skipping school. I skipped an entire semester, minus maybe one class. Um, their response to that was to put me in ISS, in-school suspension. But in order to be in in in-school suspension, you have to be at school, which I was already skipping, so it did absolutely nothing to deter me. (laughs) So eventually I withdrew from 
the high school and went to an alternative school and I graduated, I got my diploma, and I tested out of everything. Yay! Yay. So, thus ended high school. Um, after high school, a lot of the results of my decisions became apparent. I had no direction. Mm. I had nowhere to go. I had no growth. I had no ambitions. I was just some guy. Mm. And that was all. I did have some party buddies. So that was really the only thing that interested me. So I continued that. Again, home life was still just the same. And I decided that my best way out was to join the Navy. Mm. So I got signed up. I got a contract. I went out to training. Um, I got broken. <laughs> I got sent home. So the Navy there... didn't watch you. No. <laughs> so here I am back. So I had left in training. I was separated my 4-2 day, which was Sim Fire Day. I remember it distinctly. I was so upset because <laughs> I couldn't go to the firing range. Um, I spent two weeks in SEPs, which is a separations unit where they put you while you're still in the Navy, but you're not sent home yet. It's like prison. It's terrible. Fun stuff. It's terrible. I met NCIS. They're all very angry people. A buddy of mine got beat in the face with a lock in a, in a sock because he talked too much one night. And they were trying to figure out who did it. It was this this big mess and craziness. So I wanted out. Yeah. Two weeks in that was enough for me. Fair enough. And I remember being so excited. Oh, I get to go home. (laughs) Maybe things will be different. Hmm. Things were not different. I was yelled at about something I had done wrong before I had even gotten back to my house. Hmm. I was standing on the welcome mat (laughs) of my grandmother's home. And she yelled at me through the open door. I was kind of like, welcome home. Not happy to see you. Basically. So I worked at a bar trying to make ends meet. I had some bills to pay. Didn't like that. So I moved to uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming as an, another attempt to escape. And that was kind of fun. Again, I was drinking almost every single night. Mm-hmm. Almost all of what little money I had went to cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> I made no friends. Oh. Um, mostly my fault. And I was hungry a lot. Mm. I could not afford food. I, I, I remember walking around the downtown Cheyenne area looking for change so I could buy ramen. I was hungry. <laughs> I was the most hungry I've ever been. Mm. Um, but I remember feeling peace. No one was yelling at me. Hmm. It was the first time in my life where I had gone more than two days and not being yelled at. And it felt wonderful. (laughs) I was, you know, living my own life. I was in a downtown area, busy. I had all the alcohol that I could want and no one to tell me what I was doing was wrong. Mm. So I I kind of enjoyed that a little bit. Uh, A sense of freedom. And then I... Kind of got a call that my grandfather was becoming ill. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to be there with him. So I moved back and I stayed with him from for two years. That's how long I was back. And I watched him slowly go down the drain of age and life hard lived. 
Mm. And it was kind of sad to watch him kind of swirl around the toilet. It was sad to see him cry, not because of certain conditions or anything like that, not for himself, but he cried because he knew that there would be nothing he could leave me after he dies, and that when he eventually does, I'll be left alone with my mom and my grandmother. Mm. And that kind of continued. Uh, the doctor recommended hospice care for him. Yeah. Um, and he refused to go to a home. I remember way back, way back when he promised, Bubba, never let me go in a nursing home. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I was maybe 10 years old, and I, I was committed to that promise. <laughs> Happily, he never saw the inside of a nursing home. Nice. And his pain grew worse, and his condition grew worse. So we set up a hospital bed in the living room. We moved the couch. Um, I had my bed set up there because I slept in the living room for many years. And every day, he was less and less conscious. Hmm. Um, doctors went ahead and gave him morphine. Um, it was palliative care at that point. Yep. Just make them passing away as comfortable as possible. And that was the goal. My mother had started using harder drugs around this time as well. She started using um, methamphetamine, which is an entirely different animal. It is, it is insane. She would stand for hours screaming at a painting. She would throw knives. She would um, pick at herself. It was just, her room was just destroyed. So through this, I was getting ready and trying to prepare myself for my grandfather's inevitable passing. Mm -hmm. And I kind of accepted that there was no way I could prepare. So I just decided that I was going to hang out Wait for it to happen and allow that experience to utterly destroy me and send me down a cliff. Because I knew after he was gone that that would be the last thing that was holding me back from just jumping off the edge. Mm. And I remember the night. I was at IHOP with a friend. There was almost a fight. Kind of cool, but we were hanging out with jailers. So um, the fight did not happen and the police liked us. It was great. They dropped me off. I walked in the door and I saw my grandfather laying there. And I knew that that was it. And my first thought was, God, no, not today. Hmm. My second thought was, why not today? He had suffered for a long time. Why not? So I closed the door behind me and I walked over there. And I put my hand on his wrist. I felt no pulse. And I knew that he was gone. So I walked into the back where my mother was. I told her that she needs to come here. And my grandmother heard, so they both go in there. And they kind of hang out. They, they're putting their hands on him. And I'm starting to get angry. We called the doctor that was on call for hospice. Mm -hmm. uh, he took about 45 minutes to show up, and those 45 minutes were terrible. My mother and my grandmother stood around and reminisced, and they laughed. 
a lot of fond memories, and I could feel my heart in my neck. I was so angry that they had the nerve to stand around and not mourn the things that they had done to him. It was a frightening occasion for me. So the doctor came, declared death. They called the nurse or the funeral home. They came and they took his body. I don't remember that night. Um, it's kind of a blur. The next day, hospice came, took the bed, and we moved the couch back. And I remember that night. It was really, it was really interesting. I sat down. And it was the first time I had cried about it. I remember praying that, or praying and telling God that I wasn't angry that my grandfather was gone. I was just thankful for the years I had with him. Mm. And I wasn't angry anymore. I had always kind of heard about this strange, you know, peace that passes all understanding, but never had never yeah. experienced that. And that was really the first time. Oh, by the way, yes, backtrack a little bit. There was a, a little uh, Bible study I was going to, and it was called Invictus, meaning victory. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wasn't interested. I was going because I liked the girl that was going, <laughs> which is not the best reason to go. <laughs> um, but there was a song, there's normally like a song service, and they have like this little sermon, and then you go home, right? It's about an hour and a half long. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, uh, they were doing the song service, and then they were doing the song service, and they are doing the song service, and I started checking my watch, like, how long is this going to go on? Because I didn't like the song service. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, want, I just, just go ahead and talk to me, because I don't like singing. <laughs> and the, the guy kind of like hushed the, hushed the choir and said, there's somebody sitting here in this room who cannot say what Jesus has done for them. Hmm. And they need to come up here now. I started looking around. And... (laughs) Looks to be whoever that is. have to go up there in front of everybody. Hmm. And they kind of continued. And no one was going up there. And I started to feel like, maybe maybe I should go. I'm not going. (laughs) I, I fought that feeling maybe 10 minutes. They were committed. Somebody was going up there. (laughs) They were not giving up. No. And I can only describe it as God was saying, you need to go up there. I'm not going up there. There's no way. (laughs) And I started getting this horrible feeling like in the pit of my stomach. The more I fought going up there, the worse the feeling got. Hmm. And eventually it it just became too much. I was like, whatever, I'm going. And as soon as I stepped out of the aisle, that horrible feeling was just gone. And I walked up there, I dropped to my knees, and I cried. <laughs> it was great. Um, still, I was, you know, even after then, I was partying and all that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, that was that was just before the end of high school, that little bit. Back to, back to where we were. Grandpa had just passed away. Yes. And letting go of the anger that you kind of felt like your mom and grandma just made your grandpa's life hard, but yet had no remorse for it. Right. So, now that he was gone, we had a funeral to afford. Yeah. Um, 
So I sold, I sold my Xbox, I sold my gun, I sold um, some tools that I had collected, everything that I could take to the pawn shop I sold. My mother had destroyed most of the things that she could sell um, and we were just sort of desperate. The church finally said that they would do the service for free, which freed us up to afford the cremation. Hmm. So that was good. It still took us a couple of weeks to actually get them paid, get him cremated, um, get the service. My mother stayed relatively sober until the morning of the funeral. Um, that was hard to kind of see. The funeral was nice. We were late. We were about an hour and a half late. So we missed the pro- the procession. Oh. Yes. They could just couldn't get themselves ready, which made me mad. <laughs> the funeral came, and there was a poem that Grandfather had in his Bible. He first showed it to me when I was single digits. He had me promise that at his funeral, I would say this poem. Mm. And I have this horrible fear of public speaking. I, I don't like talking in front of people. So now here's this room full of a crowd. I had even skipped all the public speaking things in school. I was magically sick those days. Wow, <laughs> how convenient. Yes, of course. So, of course, the... I had great apprehension on speaking, but decided that, no, this is my grandfather's final wish for me. I will do it. So I got up there and I spoke. The poem is called, I Am Free. I did not bring it, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yeah. My heart was pounding. I, I, I did get through it, though. I got through it without crying. I got through it without choking. I got through it quickly, but I didn't get through it. After the funeral, we laid him to rest in what's called a columbarium. Um, it's a place where you put ashes, but it's built into the wall, um. and they're in columns. It columbarium, barium columns. Yeah, yeah, that's how I remember what it's called. Real creative name right there. Yes, um, it's an it's a old Anglican tradition, um, very economical way of doing things. So, I got invited to a Monday night Bible study by Tom shortly after. I went maybe eight times. Then things at home got even worse with my mom's meth use. It was, it was hard. It was like having to relive the worst memories of my childhood all over again. Mm. But this time without grandpa. And I grew very depressed. I drank even more, if that is somehow possible. My friend group had broken up um, in various ways. A couple of them had committed suicide. A few of them had gotten locked up. Some of them did a great thing and left the area and kind of had everything gone. Mm. And again, I felt alone. There were times where I would sit down with a with a gun in my lap, I'd sit in the bathroom and just kind of have the thought of I'm probably seven muscles, three and a half pounds of trigger pull away from not having any more problems. Hmm. Um, obviously, again, 
But still alive. Still here. Still, still upright. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a rough time. Mm-hmm. So, mom finally decided that things were too much for her. She enrolled in treatment. The days leading up to that were pretty stressful because they had limited beds, and she could be denied if something got went wrong. So I stayed with her a lot. After she finally got to the treatment, I sat down and decided that my life is garbage. Oh. <laughs> I, had, I had no hope. I had no direction, no order. The only person that ever really loved me was gone and that I needed, I needed something. And I kind of remembered that, well, there's this church that I could go to and I know what will happen Every single week for one day. Hmm. So there's that place that I could find order. So I started reading the Bible for myself, um, like like actually reading it, like really trying to like figure out what is this saying, why is it relevant, who God really is. Yeah. Um, I started going to church. I started going to the Monday night Bible study again. I started doing Bible studies on my own. Kind of sort of moving forward, kind of sort of not, still kind of crazy. And then I had this weird thought that maybe I should ask my grandmother and my aunt if they would like to have a Bible study with me. And I thought to myself, there is no way I'm about to ask them that question. Yeah. There's no way. And I fought it for weeks, and it lingered every day that I should ask them if they want to have a study with me. And I finally decided, all right, fine. I will ask only because I know they're going to say no. I can ask them, be done with it, and continue on with my life. Like, yes, Lord, I'll do it because I already know the answer. <laughs> right. So I went and I asked and they said yes and I double-taked and we did one stuff. <laughs> it was very nerve-wracking to sit down and have a Bible study with these two individuals, particularly my grandmother. But it went good. I don't remember what the study was about exactly. I know it was a lot of stuff in Galatians. And we got done. And it was kind of okay. And the night came. We went to bed. We woke up. And in the morning, my grandmother and my aunt were talking, which is never a good thing. And I heard my grandmother apologize for the first time in my life. If I had seen a human arm reappear it would not have convinced me that god was real more than that moment Mm. it would not have convinced me that god cared about me my family my struggles and my situations but to hear an apology to hear a hope of healing in my family that was really the moment where it was it was it became real for me that god was not this strange, distant, you know, apathetic onlooker mm-hmm. on my life. And so that day we did another Bible study. And we did we did Bible studies fairly regularly for a little while. The apologies continued, we talked. There were frustrations. Yeah. My my grandmother felt bad that she didn't know more about the Bible and you know, tell her it's okay, we're all learning together, it's fine. Eventually, those studies kind of, I guess, grew cold. We stopped doing them. 
things kind of slid back a little bit. But the memory of seeing for myself a change in somebody, I'll never forget it. Mm. So I decided that I would throw myself into the church, that I would commit everything I could, and that I would serve God in whatever capacity he would allow. Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted. It was the only thing that meant anything for me. Yeah. Um, I met my buddy Matt at the Monday night Bible study. And he, we kind of bonded over the fact that we had dated the same girl, not at the same time. So <laughs> um, he loved theology and debate. We could sit down and we could argue and still be friends. And he became my first honest, godly Christian friend. Mm. So now I had a peer in the church. Whoa. <laughs> it, was, it was great. <laughs> Someone who accepted me, even though I was strange. <laughs> um, I was reconfirmed into the Anglican church. The Monday night Bible study started looking for other student leaders. And again, it was one of those moments of like, there's no way I'm going to do that. You can't make me. <laughs> I don't want to. No. Unfortunately, Matthew had to go to school. Uh, he was seeking a master's in theology. And nobody else was willing to do it. So somehow, some way, in God's great mm-hmm. sense of humor, I started leading the Monday night Bible study, which was great fun. It marked the... the biggest period of learning of my life because mm-hmm. you, you sit down and you're trying to get all this information to present to other people and you learn so much it was it was super exciting it was great fun then came a an opportunity to go on a mission trip which is something i had kind of always thought about you've always heard about missions and like you know how great mother Teresa was yeah <laughs> um, and um, I kind of thought about it. I prayed about it. And Tom encouraged me to go. And so I said yes. And we went to put on a VBS in the Apache Reservation in San Carlos. Cool. We had we had great fun with the kids. They were wonderful. <laughs> they were, you, you want to talk about high-energy children. <laughs> the Apaches are great. Super fun. There's a lot of a lot of interesting things. There's a lot of racism. Mm. Um, the there were a group of Apaches that really did not appreciate white people from Texas showing up, of all places, history, um, and with some things in in my background that I, I briefly mentioned. It was interesting to see the opposite side of that. It was kind of informative of, oh, we're all just people and we're, we're dumb. <laughs> we're so, we're so dumb. Um, Sometimes, yes. Yes. So there was, there was a, um, we had this big, huge, long butcher block paper um, and we had all the kids put their hands on it and write their names as a, you know, a commitment to Jesus thing. It was great, great fun. Mm-hmm. And we had it kind of like laying out to dry. And there were a couple of kids eating on top, eating lunch on top of it. And Tom had asked me to go over there and to politely get them to not do that because we don't want to ruin it. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, okay. So I went over there and I asked them not to. And 
and they relented and they just sort of moved directly to the floor. Hmm. And I decided that, well, you know, they're kids. So we're probably going to wait till I leave and continue to doing exactly what they were. Yeah. So I asked them if I could have lunch with them. And they kind of, like, you know, hand in hand and said, oh, okay. So I went and got my lunch, came back, sat down, and I just sort of ate with them. I didn't say much. And I noticed that they were trying to scare me away. So one of the kids started talking about how his dad had just gotten back out of jail and that his uncle had murdered somebody and kind of things like that. And I decided that they're not going to scare me away and mentioned that my mother had gone to jail uh, a few times and that she did things that weren't right. Mm Mm-hmm. And they kind of looked at me with some surprise, and we talked briefly about it. And then all of a sudden, they were telling me about their favorite video games. They were telling me about their cousins. They, they just, the floodgates opened. And for the rest of that trip, they were, like, around my hips. It was great. And that was a big moment for me, a big moment of healing. I think back to those times where I feel that God was silent on my prayers. And... I used to ask, why? Why do I have to go through this? Why me? And I decided that that's maybe not an invalid question, but it's the wrong question. Mm. There's a better question to ask. Questions of what can God do in this situation? What can God do with these experiences? How can God redeem this point in my life? And although no one should suffer in those ways, they will. That's the cost of sin. I think back to my mom, and I don't look at her with contempt or anything like that. She's a sinner just like I am, just like everyone else is. Mm -hmm. And sin has a cost. It costs ourselves. It costs those around us. And that's just kind of how it is. But even through those things, God can take those experiences And he can use them to open doors. Those kids saw that this isn't just some random guy. But here's somebody who's older and he gets it. You know, maybe not their entire story. Maybe not certain details. But he knows what it is to hurt. And I think that's one of the good things about pain. Is that no one's a stranger to it. No, that's for sure. I don't think it's right to compare pain, you know, where, oh, this person's had it worse or this person's had it better, because hurts hurt, you know. It's a unifying factor for us, and it allows us to understand God a little bit, because aside from us, God's the only one that suffers. He has to see his children do these horrible things to one another, Mm -hmm. and he can empathize with us and with our pain. And that's one of the promises that I find so interesting where that we do not have a high priest that is unable to empathize with us because he was tempted in every way we were. We're not alone. We don't have these experiences just unique to ourselves, but God decided that he would come and share them with us, even though we are so undeserving for him to have done that. Mm. And another great experience for me from that trip is there was a a guy, a rather large Apache man, 
and he went for an altar call. When I had first seen him, you know, you can look at some people and just know that this person has seen horrible things. You can kind of see it in their eyes. And um, we had a, a Christian rapper who was our kind of, I guess, headliner, which was really funny. He was there for the kids, but like the grandmas loved him. <laughs> the kids were of least interest. It was the grandmas that really liked his music, mm. <laughs> which was so funny. Um, but he had grown up on the streets, and he was giving his testimony and gave a couple of songs and then gave an altar call. I looked over to see this rather large Apache man. He would just sit there, and he was just nodding, waiting. And I wonder if he was having the similar experience to what I had experienced. Of you know, There's somebody here cannot say what Jesus had done for them. It's just that, like, that internal battle of, I'm not going up there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going up there. Fine, I'll go. So he gets up and he walks over and he just lets loose. He is in tears. And his one of his sons had gone up there and followed him and was hugging him, hugging his leg and looking up, seeing his dad cry, maybe for the first time. And I've always been so curious what that will do what will be the effect of that mm-hmm. it was really amazing and I remember thinking that that right there that change in a person's life that step towards eternity is really the only thing that matters that's the only thing of substance and it's beautiful and I felt so privileged that I was allowed to witness that it was good so my time in Texas came to an end shortly after that, and I decided that I would again try to make an attempt to go out on my own. And I moved up to the great state of Idaho, and kind of here I am now. Yay! Yay! Idaho, much yes. better place than Texas. Yes, can confirm. Sorry, Texas. Someone's gonna get mad at that. That's okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Charles, for sharing. I. I'm still getting my thoughts together. <laughs> Slow processing today. Um, but I think every testimony and every story has, has value. And I like yours because, like, you know, your story is not, like, the story of the minority, but probably more of the vast majority of Americans now because, like, addiction and pain and trauma, it's just, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more the reality of our nation. And, like... I like in part that's because we drift away in God, from God, but also in part because like the only person who truly heals us and helps us to realize like, like, hey, like, yes, my family did these things and they were not great, but I don't have to live them, you know, like I don't have to drink away this sorrow. I don't have to drink away this pain. I don't have to flee from them necessarily to find healing, but you know, sometimes you do still have to leave that situation, but like God, it's him who's there and it's him who gives us healing and like that's not always an easy thing to find in those instances because like you're saying our earthly fathers definitely are the ones that give us the foundation for who god is and like when your father is absent or you're you know um some fathers are abusive i mean sometimes we have good fathers um but not everybody and so it can be hard to like come to god and realize like hey like it feels like my prayers are hitting the wall. It feels like he's not there. It feels like he's like my earthly father and he's abandoned me too. But to come to a point of like realization of like, he's never abandoned me. 
He's always been here. Those prayers that you were praying for your family to be fixed, to be mended, they weren't answered in those moments. But through that Bible study, there was healing there. It may not be whole and it may not complete. Complete and our families may be forever broken. But God hears our prayers and he is working to answer them. And like, you know, it's easy when you don't hear those answers to prayer, when you don't see God's love to like step back and like, you know, kind of like, like kind of wipe your hands or wash your hands of the situation and be like, he's not here. He's not answering my prayers. And to slip into that despair and to be like, well, see, since he's not here and life's not getting better, what's the point? But like still through those hardships, coming back to him and realizing like, no, he is here and he loves me. And we definitely have those moments of wrestling, but I don't want to go up there. <laughs> um, but it's important to take those moments and actually do go up there and make that commitment because we all have brokenness and we all have pain. And it can be a thing that divides us and drives us apart, like comparing pain, like you're saying, my pain's worse than yours, so you can't even talk to me. <laughs> or it can be something to be like, well, maybe our pain is all different. We all hurt in different ways. But using that as a chance to bond to one another and find healing in that. But also finding healing in the God who's experienced all that pain. He's been around far longer than us. He's witnessed our degradation and he's been through it seen it all and like we're his children and he loves us so he probably hurts the worst out of all of us so thank you for your story i think that's really important for us to remember and look upon all right well thank you charles for coming and sharing your story i think that's very kind of you and very brave of you so anyway tune in next week to hear kylie recording somebody else bye if you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow, share, like, and review. Also, you can contact us at our Facebook page, that is God is Real, God is Good Podcast, or you can email us at God is Real, God is Good Podcast at gmail.com. Bye! Bye.